Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. One of my favorite carols of the season is Joy to the World. Tonight marks the 35th Christmas Eve service that I have planned. And if I had access to all of those bulletins, it would confirm what I suspect to be true, namely that all of them opened either with Joy to the World or O Come All Ye Faithful. We're not able to do that tonight. Our COVID protocols still restrict us to sing one hymn as a congregation together. But if we did not have that barrier, surely I would have added to that tradition again. For even though we are not going to sing it in its entirety, though I am sneaking a verse in our communion liturgy, it is that particular verse that has resonated with me, and, and most of all, the refrain, joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. I did some quick online research this week to no avail. I wanted to understand why Isaac Watts had chosen to open his carol in the way that he did. Couldn't find any definitive insight. And so it left me wondering, wondering if perhaps he was inspired by our reading from Luke when the heavenly hosts respond glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors? Or maybe Watts was thinking about the words from the psalm that we read tonight that in part says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Whatever the inspiration, for that hymn writer of long ago. I'd like for us to ponder tonight what it looks like when heaven and nature sing. In particular, in those places where it intersects with beloved traditions. For I would argue that there is no annual event more laden with tradition than Christmas. In my family of origin, on Christmas morning, our parents would have the five of us sit on the stairs leading up to the second floor while my father would go into the room to see if Santa had arrived the previous night. Inevitably, he would come back with a sad expression on his face, 
and say, I think he passed us over tonight. But if you want to go look yourself, you're free to do so. And with that word of release, we dashed into the living room and we saw, of course, he was teasing us again. And we then rejoiced and began to play with our new toys. And Lori and I continued that tradition with our children. Now, I've heard about all kinds of other traditions that people have around this time of the year. Some clearly defined practices as to when the tree goes up and when presents can be opened and whether or not stockings can be opened before the presents. I've heard of particular meals that are, and when they're going to be served at Christmas and what exactly has to be part of those meals. And all of those traditions, I think, pale in comparison to this article I read about this time last year in which a journalist from the Washington Post was asking his readers to share some of their own Christmas traditions. Here are a few. A woman named Susan Burroughs wrote that in her family, the gift card on a present is so much more than the to and from. It is a thoughtfully produced series of clues to what is inside the package. Success is judged on reaction, she said, which can range from anger to confusion, fear, hilarity, and eventually when unwrapped, great fun for all. She went on to express her dismay when newcomers to the family don't always follow that tradition, for sometimes they just put the to and from on the tag. Even worse, she said, on their presence, they fail to read the clue appreciate the wit, and just tear open the gift without partaking of this ritual. A man named Tom Logan wrote that growing up in a family of four boys, Christmas morning was a free-for-all with wrapping paper everywhere. And his surprise and confusion, the first Christmas he was with his in-laws and saw his new father-in-law and his new brother-in-law pull out a pocket knife and open it why, he said, because no one tore wrapping paper in that family. They would take the knife and gently slit the tape and then open the paper so that it might be saved for the next year. While another woman named Marlon Pringle spoke of how as a newlywed the first Christmas that she was with her in-laws that she and her husband were asleep on Christmas morning when there was this knock at the door and shout, it's Christmas. It was her new sister-in-law, Robin, and it was 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Robin was no toddler, she said. Robin was an adult in college. She had been one of the bridesmaids in our wedding, and it turned out that getting up at the crack of dawn was a tradition in her new extended family. She struggled to the living room where then she learned of another family tradition that no one could approach the tree until grandmother had eaten a tangerine. <laughs> I suspect that those traditions aren't exactly the same as yours, but can well imagine that the ones that you follow, those norms, are ones with which you have great passion in holding on to them. And thus, 
I know I'm taking a great risk tonight in seeking to identify what I would suggest is the best Christmas tradition. I would also point out that as we all know, anytime something happens two years in a row, that it's well on its way to becoming a tradition. And there are a couple things about this service that I'm hoping don't fall into that category, namely that next year we'll be able to sing more than one hymn and that next year masks won't be required. Time will tell. And yet with those as caveats, we'd like to offer to you what I would propose is the best Christmas tradition and I base it on the scripture readings that we've heard tonight. First clue comes in Luke's gospel, a very familiar narrative for us, telling us of how the angels delivered the news of the Christ child to the shepherds first. That would have been a startling choice by God in the first century. To you and me, shepherds are given characters in that narrative, kind of we have warm associations with them, likely because Either we or our children or grandchildren played a shepherd in some pageant. And yet in the first century, shepherds were widely viewed as a kind of pastoral thief because they would allow their sheep to graze on other people's land. It went beyond that point to where shepherds were on the list of people who could not be called as witnesses in a trial because they were viewed as inherently untrustworthy. And yet, God sent an angel to shepherds as the first ones to hear the news of what had happened in Bethlehem. And I am convinced that when that occurred, heaven and nature sang. Our psalm adds, I think, to this sense that I'm developing of what is really the best Christmas tradition. We've already pointed out that it, it tells us of how nature joins in the trees and the, the sea singing with great excitement. And yet then the psalmist goes on to explain why nature is responding in that way. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, he said, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Did you hear that? The reason that heaven and nature were singing was because one would come who would finally judge all humankind with justice and with fairness. And so when we hear those words alongside this glimpse of the first recipients of the news from Bethlehem, it suggests to me that the best kind of Christmas tradition is one in which the good news is intentionally shared with the hurting ones of this world. Let me tell you of a family I've never met that has a tradition like that. 
I read about them a number of years ago, and it was written by a woman. She never gave her name, but she describes the tradition in this way. It's a simple white envelope, she said, nestled between the branches of the tree. There's no name on it, no inscription. And we've been, I've been doing that now for about 10 years. And I started it because my husband, Mike, hated Christmas. Not, not the essence of Christmas, not the real meaning of Christmas. He hated the commercialism. He hated the way that people would scramble at the last minute to get a tie for Uncle Harry or powder for Grandma because they hadn't gotten anything and they felt like they had to buy something. Knowing that about him, she wrote, I decided that this Christmas I was gonna do something different and the idea came to me in an unusual way. A 12-year-old son at the time was playing on a, a, a junior wrestling team Shortly before Christmas, they had a match against a team sponsored by an inner city church. Our boys were there in their blue and gold uniforms in their new tennis shoe, new shoes, whereas this other team, it looked at if their shoes were held together with their shoestrings. Worst of all, they didn't have a kind of headgear designed to protect their ears. They, they couldn't afford them, obviously. Well, as the match unfolded, our boys won every one of those matches. And it when it was over, Mike turned to me and said, I wish the other team could have won at least one. They got so much potential, but, but I know this is going to take away their spirit for this. And, and she said about her husband, Mike knew children. He loved children. He had worked as a coach baseball and football and lacrosse and his comment gave her the idea because the next day she went out and bought all kinds of wrestling gear various sizes shoes and and the headgear they needed and then sent it anonymously to that church and that Christmas she wrote what she had done and put it in this white envelope for her husband and so when he pulled it off the tree that Christmas talked about how his face lit up, how it clearly was his favorite part of that Christmas. And so in the years that followed, she would do the same thing, a different place that she would direct her giving, but only telling him about what she had done. She said it grew to be the favorite part of Christmas for our children, too. It was the last thing that was opened. After all their toys had been set aside, they would watch with wide-eyed wonder to see this year where the gift was going. Well, that's not the end of the story, she continued. See, we lost Mike this year. And when I got to Christmas, I was so wrapped up in my grief, I wasn't sure I was even going to be able to get through it. But on Christmas Eve, I went and put that envelope on the tree again. And the next morning, when I awoke, discovered that all three of our children had done so too, and neither of them had known the other was doing it. So the tradition had then taken a new chapter. And one day she said, our grandchildren will also gather around the tree and watch as their parents open up that envelope and learn 
who has received that gift? The spirit of Christmas, she said, and the spirit of Mike lives on. What's the best Christmas tradition? What is the best way to reflect the news that came to shepherds long ago? What I would suggest that it includes a very intentional act on our part to reach out to the ones who still need to experience that good news in a tangible way. That even though we know this world isn't yet what God intends it to be, that we will continue to make a difference with the hurting ones who live around So enjoy all of the traditions that are celebrated on this night and tomorrow in your family. Have fun with all of those customs you have that mark the celebration of Jesus' birth. But I would suggest that you add a new tradition or build upon one that is already in place of in some intentional way reaching out to care for the shepherd-like figures who still live around us. And when we do that, it's the hymn writer that tells us what will occur. As once again, heaven and nature will sing. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for the incredible act of love you demonstrated for us long ago. We thank you for the way that you ensured that that message first went to ones whom that society would have least expected. And pray that as we continue to move through this Christmas, that we will consider how we might yet Share that good news in similar fashion that all might come to know and to celebrate the Savior who was born to save. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, just yesterday was Christmas, and on Christmas Eve, we proclaimed, Jesus is born, and it was absolute wonderful news. Nowadays, the birth of a child is an occasion that involves announcements set, and sharing stories, and memories, and traditions. Usually, and it is our custom to celebrate with a tradition that God has claimed our lives through baptism with our church family. Maybe even a special outfit has been chosen for this particular baptism. I know mine was uncovered with layers of tissue paper that had been torn back through the generations so that the baptismal gown could be presented to the new baby and preserved for these special moments. Now, the birth of a child evokes all sorts of religious and family and social traditions. And this is where we find the characters of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in this early chapter of the Gospel of Luke. 
the parents of Jesus are responding to attending to the traditions of their Jewish faith, um, called for by the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, an Old Testament book filled with laws. And such traditions are meant to be a reminder that the baby is not born only in the context of this small family, but also born in the context of a larger family, both ancient and to come, a church family, for lack of a better word, and this covenant that has been established with God's people. And so this scripture is intended to highlight this part of Jesus's life. And though we hear very little about Jesus's early parts of his life, it's not supposed to just be about them going through the Jewish rituals, you know, this happened and following that, this happened just as boxes to be checked. Okay, we brought the baby to be uh, done in the temple with what needed to be done. But it's also a recognizing of God's salvation and future hope. So it's absolutely amazing that Mary and Joseph would do this for their child, Jesus. And this birth was a renewed hope, a hope expressed by each of the persons named in our passage from Luke. Mary and Joseph came to present Jesus to God and demonstrated their confidence in God's promises here and now and in the future. But you know what? It's actually pretty unclear whether Mary and Joseph had a full picture about what really was going on and what was going to happen. Certainly, the angels and the shepherds gave them some hint and some clue and some realization that this was a very big global thing. But we meet two other characters who certainly know. They fully know what's happening and what's about to happen. So Simeon is described as this devout and righteous man. He's seeking comfort for the people of Israel. And we have the prophet Anna, or Anna, who fasts and prays for the restoration of Jerusalem every day in the temple. And she is known to be of quite old in her age. And they're all gathered there. Mary and Joseph and the family, Simeon and Anna, who as if the angels and the shepherds weren't enough, all focus on this baby who's so tiny and so precious, but all the attention is on the baby in the room, right? I'm not exactly sure how Mary felt encountering Simeon and Anna, uh, though having had a baby sort of recently, I can recall that there was this one instance that caught me off guard as people were trying to approach my baby in awe and wonder and excitement. Royce was born in the very early days of the pandemic on March 9th, 2020. And after the stay at home orders, myself and other parents, they all stayed at home because we had precious cargo along with us. And we were already planning to do that, so we had the baby wipes stockpiled up and meals in our freezer and a meal train already coming to our house. And if you have any opportunity to recollect what being near a baby is like, there's just something that draws you in, isn't there? At one point at the stay-at-home orders, we just had to get out of the house. I'm sure you all did too especially with a bustling three-year-old at that time at home. So we went to the park 
And we were walking around the park as we do and learning how to use our scooter in those early days. And there was a couple that was walking by of older age and they just started quickly walking towards us with their arms outstretched towards us that I thought they were almost going to grab us. And they didn't, they stopped short, I think probably because of the protocol, don't touch people or babies. But they still had their arms outstretched and they still had their oohs and their ahs and they were so excited to just behold us. And they were asking us a hundred questions and telling us stories, I think, to just belabor and be able to be in the presence of this baby, baby Royce. Because they knew that it was just magical. And they knew that they just wanted to be there. And wanted to be there for as long as possible. What an encounter. It was strange. It was unexpected. And they knew how precious it was to be near this baby. Now, everyone who is Jewish was waiting for the Messiah. There's no doubt about that. And they heard prophecies from when they were young in Torah school. Their time had come for all the wonders that this baby would reveal. And it was unexpected how precious they were able to be near this. And who Jesus was and what he would be for his people is still yet to come. And that's where we meet the characters of Simeon and Anna. They know, and they help others know. There's no time like the present. That's one way to summarize, to give a title to this eloquent story of Jesus and Simeon. In Luke's account, it soon came for Jesus to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, and Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple, and there they met Simeon. Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Undoubtedly, to Mary and Joseph's surprise, somewhat like Becca's encounter with uh, elderly couple in the park. Undoubtedly, to Mary and Joseph's surprise, Simeon abruptly took Jesus into his arms and praised God in a famous hymn known as the Nunc Dimittis. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now Simeon was a student of scripture, a man who grew wise and righteous, and most of all a man who waited to find the Messiah revealed to him. As soon as he saw Jesus, he recognized him as the Messiah. As soon as he saw him, the one who would save all peoples, a revelation to the Gentiles and the people of Israel. 
After years of waiting, after decades of study, Simeon saw the truth before him and acted. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah and declared the truth revealed in the little child. Waiting for the Messiah was over. Now came the time for God to dismiss him in peace, for his eyes had seen God's salvation. As I have meditated about this story, I've come to see something of myself in Simeon. Like him, I decided to study and reflect on how people experience God. Starting with college, I became a student of history, eventually going on to get a PhD in history, teaching church history at two Presbyterian seminaries, and publishing several books which I enjoyed writing and a few people actually read. <laughs> it would be too much to say that I became wise about the history of Christianity, but I did work at it. Now, as I look back on it, the theme of my work was invariably the subject of the presence of God. I was a searcher and researcher, trying to find out how people experience God. And then, at the age of 56, I found God. I remember it was in a very common place. It was a kitchen where I was spreading peanut butter on an English muffin. I remember I was at a very low point in my life, and I remember a voice saying to me, you are not alone. And from that point on, my life was different. The discouragement and loneliness I knew disappeared and became hope. I no longer analyzed and delayed. I responded. I found myself in God. There was no longer any waiting. For me and for Simeon and for countless others throughout the history of the church, encountering God means recognizing God's salvation. The age of waiting for more is past. There's an old folk saying that goes like this, the past is the past, the future is the future, and the present is a gift. And that's why we call it the present. There's no time like the present. Amen. A few years ago, I shared a little bit of Perringer family history with my Stepping Stones class. The question was, how did we come to believing in Christ? Well, in my family, it was something we grew up with from infancy. And it was generational. My father's grandfather was a pastor. One of his sons became a pastor. My father's sister was a missionary for a time and then came my generation. My sisters and I drew a deep breath of relief when my brother announced that he would be attending 
Drew Theological School. Since then, both of my sisters have done short-term missionary work, and today I take a leap of faith with you this morning. I have a confession to make. Until this past week, I've never given a second thought to this part of the Christmas story, that being the presentation and consecration of the infant Jesus in the temple and what transpires there. When Pastor Becca asked me to reflect upon Anna's role in the Luke narrative, my first thought was, Anna who? And then, Anna why? Allow me to share with you what I've learned relying on the writings of Luke and theologian Robin Gallagher Branch. First, let's begin with Anna who. Luke first tells us that Anna is a prophetess and daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. This background information is somewhat significant in that Anna is the only woman in the New Testament that is given the title prophetess. And in mentioning her lineage, Luke includes her in a group of only four people of the New Testament whose tribes are made known. Jesus, Saul, and Barnabas are the other three. So Anna is not a nameless passerby. Next, Luke tells us that Anna was of a great age. Moses had prophesied that for the tribe of Asher, your strength will equal your days. And here we see in Anna an example of that. She is very old, but still vibrant. Widowed after only seven years, Anna lived the majority of her life in the temple. We are told that she spent her days and nights in worship, fasting and praying. God had given her the gift of prophecy, the ability to share with others her spiritual understandings and divine revelations. Anna lived a devout life, and even at her advanced age, she moved about the temple and was able to speak with clear thought to those she encountered. Robin Gallagher Branch describes Anna as a worship workaholic available 24-7. I love that characterization, and I'm sure the workaholics amongst us can relate. I think there are several possible answers to the Anna why question. It may be that her very presence in the temple fulfilled the importance stated in Deuteronomy of having two witnesses to validate an event. However, I believe that her presence in this story is more meaningful. Perhaps a better reason for us to know Anna's reaction to meeting Jesus, found in verse 38, which was to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. For me, I see Anna as a biblical role model. She shows us how to live faithfully, to age gracefully, and to live with purpose. Her actions teach us to give thanks first and then speak of the Savior to those seeking redemption. Most importantly, her close relationship with God in her life's, and her life's work in the temple places her in a position where she recognizes Christ and acts upon that revelation, proclaiming that this baby, Jesus, is the child for whom they have been waiting. I am reminded of a song written by Don Bessig called, Will We Know Him When He Comes? 
You can find it on YouTube and it's worth listening to, especially in this season of Advent. Part of the chorus states, God will send his own true son, but will we know him when he comes? We don't need to be literally living in the temple to recognize Jesus. With a nod to my brother's words, and with a little bit of older sister personalization, I hope that you were able to look past the Amazon delivery truck, look past the Christmas light shows and all the to-do lists, and set aside worry about COVID this Advent season, so that you too, like Anna, were able to recognize, better yet, experience the gift of Jesus, God's own true son. The gift that we have in Jesus truly has been presented to us. And what is it that we do with it? How is it that we come to know Christ even better? And I hope that the shepherds and the angels and the wise men, and now we know some more characters in the story, Simeon and Anna, they all knew and they all understood but they also wanted to know more, and they also wanted to understand more. So how might we grow in wonder in this Christmas tide season? Would you pray with me? God, we are so filled with wonder and excitement, and that's partly why we're here. We're here to experience and to get a front row seat to how you are changing the world. And God, we know that it doesn't happen even within these four walls, but it happens elsewhere. So might we understand and keep our eyes open and our ears open and all of our other senses aware of your presence in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.